welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. My name is Giselin de Kuipers, and today I'm talking to Elisa Sobel and Jaron Harambam about conspiracy theories. Welcome to this podcast, Elisa and Jaron. And can you briefly introduce yourself first? Elisa. Yeah, hello. Hi, I'm Elisa Sobo. I'm also known as EJ. I am a professor of anthropology at San Diego State University, where I am currently department chair, but I'm set to transition in fall to the role of director of undergraduate researcher. And I am very excited about this transition. Um, I should also probably say that I'm past president of the Society for Medical Anthropology, and I've been doing medical and health anthropology for, gosh, for over 30 years. And most of it's done in mainstream clinical settings, community settings, uh, often with members of groups that, let's just say, they favor alternative or, I guess, what biomedicine might term unproven practices. And um, so with the pandemic, my work's taken on more of a public health angle. Thank you. Welcome, Elisa and Jaron. Hi. Welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jaron Harambam. I'm an interdisciplinary sociologist, uh, currently working at, as assistant professor of participatory AI at VU University in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, and my research deals with conspiracy theories, post-truth issues, uh, news and platform politics, AI in terms of content moderation and search and recommender algorithms. Um, but mostly I'm interested in public disputes over truth uh, in this era of uh, what I call epistemic instability. Thank you, Jaron. Welcome. Uh, so today we're talking about conspiracy theories. We talk about this with Elisa and Jaron, two scholars who studied contemporary conspiracy theories in a range of domains, from vaccines, COVID-19 and Big Pharma, to theories that claim the moon is an abandoned spaceship brought here by reptilians who control our world leaders. But moreover, both have argued somewhat controversially that we need to move beyond the positivistic reflex to debunk conspiracy theories as unfounded and irrational. The arguments they offer for taking conspiracy theories seriously though maybe not literally, are strongly connected with inequality, with inclusive inclusivity, with democracy, and with social justice. Today, therefore, we ask, how are conspiracy theories connected with inequalities? And how can or should this connection with inequality inform our stance towards conspiracy theories? Uh, so before we move to the central question, as uh, our listeners who've been here before know, we always start with, with a surprise question. So this is something that the guests don't know about. And the surprise question for today is, please tell me your favorite conspiracy theory. Jaron, which is the theory that you have liked best so far? Um, well, this is going to be controversial as well, but uh, I'm very much... Uh, intrigued by David Icke, and he's one of the conspiracy celebrities from the UK. Uh, you have the American counterpart, which is Alex Jones, but uh, uh, David Icke is much more interesting. And I think he's very interesting because he's able, uh, so he's the one of the reptilian uh, thesis of the idea that our world elites are ruled um, by shape-shifting reptilian races. And uh, my fascination for his theory is not so much because I find them very uh, good or convincing, etc. But what I find very uh, fascinating is how he is able to weave together like hundreds of different smaller conspiracy theories into one overarching narrative of, of, of the seed that goes into the supernatural and the outer space and prehistorical times. Um, and he connects 
conspiracy theories of the media together with uh, ancient... Uh, yeah, so he also uses a lot of different epistemologies, like drawing on ancient tradition, on, on science, on, on fiction, on, on, on science fiction, uh, all kinds of... So it's like a true hodgepodge of information, ideas, talks. And he's a great speaker. I've seen him live in Amsterdam where he's doing performances um, like all over the world. He's going on tour for like 10 hours explaining uh, or yeah, sort of lecturing on his conspiracy theories. Um, so in all kinds of ways, he's a very intriguing uh, persona. Um, and, he, and his ideas really uh, fascinate me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you also wrote an article about this, and so the the listeners can see you, but you actually look very enthusiastic as you talk about him. I can tell <laughs> that you really like this. So, so Elisa, what is your favorite conspiracy theory you've heard so far? Oh my gosh. Um, I I wish I wish I could maintain critical distance toward these things, but I think over the last couple of years, and maybe it's just living in the United States, and with the recent spike uh, in the <laughs> Spike has just been going on for years and years, but shootings uh, that are justified by some of these horrific conspiracy theories, I'm having a hard time maintaining that kind of, you know, objectivity. So I'm feeling very nostalgic. And I would just say, you know, the, the theories about alien abduction and the kind of really not so crazy wacko stuff that was just so innocent. And I, I feel, I guess I use the word nostalgia because it's to get back to that joyful embrace that I used to have around conspiracy theories as something fun to play with. And uh, I miss that. I miss the old days. Yeah, this is also one of the points that you make, right? That conspiracy theories also can be fun and aesthetic in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but unfortunately, I th we can't really look at them that way anymore because of what has happened, because of the explosion in really just disgusting, uh, hateful behavior that's come out of them. Yeah, yeah, we'll discuss more about that, uh, obviously, in the course of so, but indeed, they appeared as they have become more mainstream, I think is one of they also have become uh, more uh, serious, and maybe more difficult to sort of see as just interesting phenomena, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if I can just pick up on that for a minute, um, it, it, I wouldn't necessarily say that we have a, a, a higher proportion of people believe in conspiracies than used to. It's just that the conspiracy theories that are, people are clinging to are themselves much more, they're just ho more horrific rather than fun sort of mind games about, you know, aliens and Bigfoot and that kind of thing. So yeah, we'll return to that definitely several times because that ties directly into the issue of uh, of inequality and injustice that we want to talk about. So today we discuss no less than five different texts. One article by Jaron and Steph Alpers, an introduction to a special issue on conspiracy theories, and two articles from this special issue, one by Jaron and one by Elisa. And also a shorter article by Elisa on COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. As we'll see, all these texts are closely related. They're applied, part of what really is a lively conversation among academics about conspiracy theories. So Jaron, to start with you, can you say something about your papers very briefly? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the first paper is uh, also the first paper of my PhD, um, and um, it's in the meantime also my most cited paper, but it's 
the title Contesting Epistemic Authority. And it's based on my ethnographic research in the Dutch conspiracy world. And in it, I actually distinguish three main critiques conspiracy theorists have about science. Um, and the, what I find the interesting angle of this paper is that given the similarity of a lot of these critiques with critical social sciences, I also show how uh, academic scholars and uh, all kinds of liberal, liberal uh, critical scholars uh, would disassociate themselves from conspiracy theories. And I conceptualize these interactions as a form of scientific boundary work. Um, so that's the first paper that you've selected. And the second one is actually the introduction to the special issue that we that I did with Ela Draskiewicz, who was an anthropologist from Poland, working in Ireland and now in Slovakia. Uh, and this is very much um, focused on the question of what we as academics should do about conspiracy theories. There is often this expectation that scholars of conspiracy theories should approach them critically and should debunk these conspiracy beliefs. And this is something that I've encountered in peer reviews, uh, in academic conferences, uh, in interactions with journalists, etc. Um, so this is a more widely shared um, experience that scholars on conspiracy theories have. So we actually put the question, uh, so why is that? Why do we need to debunk them? And should we actually debunk them? And is that not problematic? And do we have any alternatives to debunking? This is the main theme of this special issue, in which we have six contributions from different academic perspectives that take different angles towards this question of moving beyond debunking. Um, then we go to the third paper, which is actually my own paper in this special issue. It's titled Against Modernist Delusions. And here in this paper, I argue that debunking uh, is not only not possible, but it's also not professional and I think not productive. And I think we get back to why I think so later on uh, in this uh, podcast. So let's keep it for that. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Jarl. So Elisa, could you say something about your articles? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, okay, so the, the core argument of this paper is that profit-boosting manipulation is axiomatic to late-stage U.S. capitalism. And the people's acknowledgement of this can overextend into a paranoid reading of just about anything. The paper also indicates that what those in power would call conspiracy theories, you know, quote-unquote, can index what are really deep-seated social structural dilemmas or group-specific locally recognized legacies of maltreatment, yeah? Such as maybe linked to racism or colonialism. So that's kind of a higher level um, version of what that paper's about. Um, the ethnographic focus of the paper is really just on parents responding to big pharma, yeah? And the contemporary healthcare industry, right? Right. So, and, and the second paper was, um, it's really an essay written for the public on COVID-19 vaccine protests that started up when the COVID-19 vaccine was first being rolled out. And the main argument of this essay was that um, the so-called American dream is really out of reach for many mainstream Americans. It focuses on whites because those were the people who were doing those initial protests at those large um, vaccine super centers. They came out and they would tell people that they were, you know, being used as guinea pigs and being injected with microchips and all that. But the the, the challenge there is to get underneath those conspiracy theories. And I what I wrote about was how rather than to question the American dream itself which might mean having to give up on the prospect for themselves. Some of the people in this group um, 
would be attracted to these theories because it's just more satisfying to blame their lack of upward mobility or their present precarity on corporate and political elites and foreigners, right? So it's a recasting of blame for um, the problems that they find themselves in, not really being able to come up and become king of the castle, so to speak, which is very far from the surface of what was being argued. So that that was the um, the second paper. Okay, so uh, before we move on to the, the back to the questions and the four questions that I have to ask you, so I always ask, what was the thing that surprised you most in the readings or in the research that underlies the research? So first, Elisa, was there something that struck you? Yeah. Yes, and you, you, you can tell yeah. from the struggle I yeah. had in talking about that other paper. Yeah. What surprised me most, um, I never anticipated this whole QAnon explosion. So writing on conspiracy theories, it was a fun thing for me prior to that. The aliens right, the faked moon landing, even Obama's faked birth certificate, even those 5G ideas that had already been circulating, they were all kind of wacky enough and and they they were thought to appeal to really so few people that the work I was doing, it kind of had lots of entertainment value for me. In addition to being sort of intellectually, you know, challenging and all that kind of stuff, I found it fun. And in fact, and we we already alluded to this, at one point, my big thing was this play value. I argued in counterpoint to those people who were worried about the crazies. Um, I, I argued in counterpoint to that, that it was people just were exploring conspiracy theories as a form of entertainment, a kind of intellectual exercise, right? Like searching for Bigfoot and all that just for a bit of fun. So that that whole, the way everything turned around just caught me off guard. It caught me off guard. Um, I, I could take that kind of fun approach because I didn't see, and I still don't see the old school vaccine hesitancy or alternative health behavior that I had been investigating as being in the same category as these full out conspiracy discourses. But QAnon and the rise of armed anti-vaccine, anti-mask extremism, it just ruined that angle for yeah. me. So yeah, it turned very, very mad, ugly, right? Yeah. So Jaron, what surprised you most? Um, I think oh, overlooking uh, my research over the years, I think what surprised me most is actually the similarities of a lot of conspiracy thinking and theories with sort of the mainstream and mainstream critique, uh, mainstream ideologies. Uh, and this makes it, uh, so th this, this comes together in the very strict policing around conspiracy theories and also the concern about conspiracy theories because it is, often uh, so difficult to tackle or to differentiate between legitimate critique and, and outright or dangerous conspiracy theories. And um, so the, 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 the very fact that I saw a lot of conspiracy theorizing in much of academia and much of social scientists um, is something that amused me a lot because when you confront scholars of semiotics or post-colonial or post-feminist ideologies uh, and how they are actually practicing of reading against the grain, uh, looking for the things that haven't been said or that are uh, implicit in texts, uh, and these sort of similarities, and if you confront these people with this similarity and then the annoyance and anger that uh, provokes um, was a fun thing to do as well. But of course, I agree very much with Elisa that things have been uh, turning uh, in, a, in a sort of a negative, very aggressive uh, way, making this more difficult to actually yeah, have these sort of comparisons made. Yeah. 
Can I pick up on that? Sure. This idea yeah. of reading against the grain. And I think this is a great point that Jaron is making is that this is what we do as social scientists. We, we are conspiracy theorists to a certain degree. But you know what? There's one other thing I want to mention in terms of a surprise. Um, you had asked about what surprises. And looking back over these, these articles, another surprise that I had was that public health still doesn't know how to instantiate the public forums that Jaron talks about, right? These deliberative citizen knowledge platforms, the deliberative forums, we're still stuck in yeah. a deficit model where all of the messaging, it's focusing on providing this quote unquote correct knowledge, but it's been clear for donkey's years that that approach doesn't work. Yeah, we'll get so, there. Thank you. So, yeah, yeah. So we'll, this, we'll return to this. So what surprised me most was actually reading. So I, I know Jaron's work for a long time. So I had sort of... Uh, recovered from the thought that conspiracy theories were were irrelevant, which was my first. I remember a long time ago when, when your supervisor, Jung, started studying conspiracy theories. I thought this is like the craziest idea ever. How can you think that this is useful? And then I was, I'm really won over by seeing how it really is a lens to see many different things. Uh, but I think reading the papers that we are reading for today, I was especially struck by an angle that I hadn't discovered yet, which really is the social justice angle. Uh, so apart from it turning mean, it's also really clear that, that conspiracy theories, uh, even though maybe not in a very fruitful or productive way, but they index, as Elisa calls it, they index uh, really serious forms of social exclusion and inequality. So to reiterate the central question, how are conspiracy theories connected with inequalities and how can or should this connection with inequality inform our stance towards those conspiracy theories? So the first question that you have answered somewhat, but I would like to ask you to be a bit more specific. So what are conspiracy theories and is this even the right term to use when talking about this. So, you know, since you are the co-author of this foundational article of this meeting, um, so contesting epistemological authority, how do you define conspiracy theories? Yeah, so I think you uh, start with the most thorny issue of the whole topic. Um, what are conspiracy theories actually? And when starting my PhD, um, I had a hard time delineating sort of my research field because there are so, so many similarities uh, um, between mainstream culture and conspiracy theories. But also, so what I found out very quickly is that there's sort of a substantive definition of conspiracy theories. So the, the, an allegation or a theory about a social event that is orchestrated by a group of men operating behind the scenes. Um, that would be a sort of a literal definition that is often used in literature, etc. But that doesn't really work. Like if you take this official definition, then the official story of 9-11 becomes a conspiracy theory, and which is obviously not a conspiracy theory of uh, all this uh, Al-Qaeda uh, terrorist blowing up uh, or going into the World Trade Centers. Um, and the same thing, you turn around with uh, Bush and Cheney's theory of uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which would be a clear conspiracy theory, uh, but it was never seen as such. So I realized very quickly that I cannot work with a substantive or a literal definition. I need to really sociologize the definition, uh, make it a relational definition. And this means that I was seeing... Uh, I, I brought in the perspective of labeling. So for me, conspiracy theories are those ideas 
uh, or people that are being labeled as conspiracy theories. Um, and this introduces the concept of power immediately, because who has the potential to discard certain ideas of, or people as conspiracy theories? And this is very closely connected to the sort of the, the moral connotations um, conspiracy theory as a label has as a derogatory term, as irrational, crazy, ludicrous, untrue. So the label itself becomes a rhetorical weapon. Um, so this means also that you, when you're defining your research field as a sociologist, uh, it's very hard to stay out of these rhetorical uh, wars, more or less. So I was very much struggling with what to do with, should I use a different term to not to sort of reproduce these connotations? Uh, in the end, I decided to keep the same term, but be explicit and reflexive about the, uh, the politics and the, uh, the morals that surround the label of conspiracy theories. Um, so more abstractly put, I think conspiracy theories are cultural imaginaries of power, of hidden power, uh, but at the same time, they're also products of power. Uh, they're the products of powerful people defining certain stuff as conspiracy theory. Okay, thank you, Jaron. So Elisa, it seems to me that you reached this research field through a rather different trajectory or route, right? coming from medical anthropology. So can you say something about how you define uh, conspiracy theories and how you got to study this? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with John that it, to a certain degree, we have to keep that label because it's a way for individuals to find the scholarship, right? Just by using that label as a search term. But um, you're right, I was brought into this realm um, sort of by a side street, all of my work for so many years has been around these alternative ideas about health. And always somewhere in there was something that somebody could term a conspiracy theory, right? Going back to AIDS research in the 90s, you know, conspiracies about where did it come from and all that kind of stuff. But I never, I never pulled at that thread until much more recently, um, thanks in part to Jaron and Ella, bringing me in and saying, hey, why don't you look at this angle? And so um, I started out again, just as Darren said, you have this kind of classic here, what's the definition? Um, and I'll read you one, okay? Fluid networks of ideas deployed against the grain of accepted understandings to argue that specific events do not unfold at random or as the secondary fallout of mundane social processes or day-to-day -day disinterested bureaucratic decisions. Rather, agents work covertly and malevolently backstage pulling strings. Yes, that is one kind of a definition. Uh, yes, I just pulled that, I just pulled that right out of the paper. But the thing is, this relational um, form of defining it is much more useful for us because that definition doesn't, it, it sort of muddies the waters, really. And it, what it does is it ignores the fact that these things exist along a continuum. And what we need to do is develop a typology, right? So, so relationally, you can think of it in relation to these power structures that, that Jaron just has, has very um, eloquently described. You have dissenting discourses, you have alternative interpretations, you have unorthodox views. But so that's one another way to sort of relabel them. But I think we need to develop a typology, right? Because anything that falls into that bucket is going to vary. And it's going to vary in all kinds of ways. It's going to vary in terms of the intensity of belief. It's going to vary in terms of the size and the distribution of the community of believers. It's going to vary in terms of the particular suspicions, right, that are being given regarding these secret operations. For example, there's the degree of concealment. There's the agentic strength that's being concealed. Like, how powerful are these puppet masters? 
Um, the reach of the agentic action can range from possibly a little bit to 100%, right? How, how fervent is the belief in it? Um, uh, the theories that we're talking about can contain lots of individually false claims, or they could just connect the dots of, quote, true facts in a false or spurious kind of way. And then, of course, there's that degree of bigotry, um, which is, is, has become such a problem. Um, but then again, while some conspiracy theories are very racist and et cetera, others are in response to racism. So how does bigotry fit into the picture? And I think what one thing that really does need to be done is to make a better and more useful typology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was indeed the question I wanted to ask you, if there is different kinds of conspiracy theories. But I think, uh, yeah, I, I think as you just argued, Elisa, maybe there definitely are, uh, but this has not been classified, right? No, the only classification so that they made yeah. was more or less on the plausibility um, and I think scope as well, that like Barcoon, Michael Barcoon in his work, uh, he distinguishes like smaller conspiracies and super conspiracies. And I think these are also relevant, uh, but most scholars go about the plausibility of the conspiracy theories and legit and differentiate between warranted conspiracy theories and unwarranted conspiracy theories. But that puts such a weird responsibility on the <laughs> scholar. Uh, of who are we to decide where where to draw the line? Yeah, that's yeah. No, it's. I think from from both of your perspective, it clearly follows that that is not the most interesting claim, right? How true is it, or how verifiable is it? I think that's. Uh, I think it's much more interesting to think also in terms of maybe more pragmatically in terms of the the effects it has or the consequence it has, or also uh, how it affects action. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the, does it have a material exactly. impact? Exactly. So, what does it make? What does it way? make people do? What sort of effects does it have? So, does it, uh, and I think that's also, and then of course, it partly gets out of the sort of label of theory, right? I mean, the interesting thing about theory is that it suggests that it's an interpretation rather than something that people act upon. Uh, and I think that's also maybe what you just said, Elisa, that I think it has changed in the sense that people now increasingly appear to act upon their theories, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the term too has another problem is it's just like any categorical construct, right? It can sort of become a, a triggering phrase. So as soon as it's used to, to describe a certain set of beliefs, it's going to put people on the defensive because basically you're calling them idiots, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're calling them crazy Looney Tunes. And that in itself is a problem. So that construct, um, it triggers this defensive response. And then that backs the people into a corner, because, right, so, and, and then again, as Jaren said, a real conspiracy theory wouldn't even be labeled like that, yeah? So the vaccine extremists, um, they began to make it a point to identify themselves not as anti-vax, not as conspiracy theorists in that way, but rather as critical thinkers, yeah? Careful healthcare consumers. And then this got taken even further when the folks on the far right and the garden variety careful consumers united under that banner of choice and freedom. Yeah, which is what has happened with COVID, I think, uh, almost everywhere, right? I think it's also that's yeah. what you, yeah. So you can't use that phrase. If you're trying to change beliefs, you cannot call people, you cannot say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. You just cannot do that. So this actually does take me to the second question. So what happens 
what do we find when we take conspiracy theories like this seriously, though not literally? So what do we find out about the world or maybe what sort of knowledge do they contain or convey? Yeah, a, a lot of different things, I think. So this also ties in very much to the definition of its typologies that there is in the container of conspiracy theories, there's so many different uh, people, ideas, concerns, etc. So it's a whole bucket list of uh, things that we can see when we take conspiracy theories seriously in the sense of that we actually want to see what those people and ideas are about. So you see very quickly that they, they range from, on the one hand, societal concerns with the workings of modern institu institutions of science, of media, of politics, etc., but on the complete other hand, there's, they also represent this strong desire for, for the supernatural and for uh, a bigger story of why we are here on Earth. Um, and, it, and yeah, sort of this need of, 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 of a meta-narrative. Um, but at the same time, you see uh, a lot of um, that conspiracy theories channel also this, this, this experienced uh, uh, distance between uh, everyday life and, and sort of the big institutions. Uh, lack of democratic access to politics. There are critiques of technocracy and meritocracy. Uh, there are efforts to recognize other ways of knowing behind, beyond facts only. So the whole appeal to experience, uh, to intuition, to life, um, yeah, street knowledge more or less uh, in, in a very technocratic world. So there's a lot of different stuff. And then we didn't even come to uh, the way it's also used in exclusionary politics and bigotry, uh, etc., that uh, Elisa was so much talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot. So, Elisa, what do you find in terms of knowledge? So what in conspiracy theories? Yeah, so just building on what Jaren has brought to us, I think we also find out what really matters to people. We find out about their core values. We learn about the hurts and the injuries that they believe need addressing. Another aspect is, is social belonging. That is a big part of buying into a conspiracy, uh, having a, a community that, that is there for you, right? So that aspect as well, we can learn about that need for community, that need for social belonging and how that plays out in keeping people involved in a certain conspiratorial community. Well, just thinking about, because we've talked about the whole QAnon thing, a lot of the QAnon people, and this isn't my research, but research has shown, um, there's a lot of loneliness, and especially with COVID, people sitting alone at their computers, and that really helped to um, balloon out the numbers. That loneliness and having somebody on the other end of the computer saying, yes, you know, you're part of, you're one of us. So they had these code words like um, where one goes, we all go, or now you're, you're a researcher just like we are. So this kind of real community building rhetoric, a lot of it very biblical in nature. And a lot of those people, they really just want what they want, you know, is, is they want that sense of community back. They want those well-paying blue-collar factory livelihoods back, not to mention the children lost to opioid addiction and so forth. So there's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. Uh, they were they were promised, right? We we were all Americans are promised. We can go from rags to riches. That's the American dream. But the pathways end up actually they're gated, yeah. And so for whites on the right, they have some of them have favored these conspiracy theories that scapegoat certain parties for having blocked the way, and that's much more comforting than admitting that the system itself or the dream is the problem. Yeah, it preserves your hope that you too are going to get there, you know, just like Donald Trump, I can do it too. 
Then you look at the conspiracy theories of minoritized groups, and they're going to be different, of course, because for them, the American dream was never, never an option. So, but just, I mean, just, just to do the, the naive question. So I do see how it indexes the American dream, but, but I mean, the interesting thing about conspiracy theories is that they have this sort of Baroque quality, right? I mean, it's so, so I can see that you want to believe other things than the things that you see in everyday life. Uh, because these are quite disappointing. But then QAnon seems so, so wild. So what about this, this baroqueness? Of, so why would people believe something that is this odd? But is it? Is it really that odd? I mean, I'm just sort of playing here, of course, but um, we, we, we're, we're taught to be savvy consumers. We're taught, and this gets back to the whole political economic context, right, of capitalism, is that people are pulling the wool. And you're raised up knowing people are pulling the wool, knowing that one way that you can get rich is to pull the wool too, right? Convince people to buy things they don't want to buy or they don't need. Convince people to buy, pay for services that they don't really need. So that whole pulling the wool is part of our political economy. So why is it Baroque? Why is it crazy to think that uh, the powers that be are pulling the wool? It makes a certain kind of sense because you're raised up with that sort of doubt seeded into you. And we're all also, um, and especially in healthcare, you see this pushing that you need to be a savvy consumer. You need to be a smart healthcare consumer. So there's magazines like Consumer Reports and that kind of thing. And the whole Ralph Nader making sure that you are in the know and you know what's really going on. So part of belonging to a conspiratorial community is that you are in the know. And that's a good feeling. Yeah. So I was also curious why, what you find particularly Baroque about it, that they bring a different different topics together or what, what, what is it that it makes it Baroque to you? Yeah, I think so. What is Baroque? So, so, well, I think your, your lizards are a particularly good example, but I think very often uh, conspiracy theories have this. So what I would say is Baroque because they have this combination of, of, of sort of minute details, like, like very telling sort of details and things that, you know, that seem very far fetched. Um, and so the question really is why, I mean, why, why would something that seems far-fetched or wild or outside so far, far away from the ordinary, why would that be more convincing than, than mundane things? Like, you know, yeah. Gosh, I, all I can say is putting a, putting a man on the moon, that was pretty crazy so many years ago. So what seems far-fetched is, is kind of a relative well, for me, the Baroque thing in, indeed is like sort of the, the, the bricolage of very different things together, of like ancient mythologies together with science fiction movies and, 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 and political extremism. It all ties together. And, uh, and I think this is a very good question of why in, in what people could call a sort of a postmodern age, uh, this resonates with a lot of people because it actually brings all the different uh, sort of ways of, of of seeing the world together in one narrative. So it makes it more entertaining as well. I think this is also, um, you, you say that people believe all of these conspiracy theories. And I think that is also, yeah, so also a way of like, you know, see, that's, the question is indeed like, what does believing a conspiracy theory mean? For a lot of things, it's indeed also sign signaling a certain group that you belong to or uh, a resentment towards certain elites. So it's, it is Baroque. I very much agree with it. But maybe that's indeed also the, the attraction of it in a sort of a technocratic world where, uh, uh, um, or, uh, where 
yeah, knowledge of the world is very uh, um, bare. It's just facts and science, and 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 I think this is also the problems that a lot of science communicators uh, have troubles with all, all the time that I'm having uh, interviews with these people. Is that they are uh, so angry that like conspiracy theorists they can use all of the different sort of literary and uh, cinematographic uh, um, uh, equipment and tools to make a, a wonderful narrative that is super convincing, while science communicators only have the facts. And then I always think that this, this is so uh, so limiting of them as well, because I think even science can show so much more. Uh, if you look, for example, at the, at the beautiful documentaries of David Attenborough about climate change, and I think here you can show also bare scientific facts with emotion, with uh, visuals, with all kinds of uh, convincing rhetorical strategies um, that are the same sort of uh, factors of appeal that conspiracy theories, especially in the mediatized form, have. Yeah, so I think that that is indeed so part of, part of it is that the wider scope of storytelling, but I think there is sort of like a, a sort of tangible, almost aesthetic quality that really sets conspiracy theories, as I've read about them also in your work, apart from things that that scientists or scholars or social scientists tend to, which indeed has a sort of a certain baroque quality, which also in QAnon. on. I mean, there are weird sort of spectacular things like like you know people putting men, men on the moon is. Also quite unbelievable, but I think QAnon. So I don't have it, uh, sort of the, the 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 specifics of this specific theory, but it has a number of you know fairly unlikely but very specific sort of that seems to be the opposite of Occam's razor, if that makes sense. No, it it does it does it does make sense. But at the same time, there's just some pretty weird stuff in the world that's real and that's factual, like. I don't know why this comes to my mind, but the whole, and I probably have it wrong, but physics, isn't it that a, you can have a particle and a wave and they're both at the same time, right? I, I, I mean, there's just some weird stuff. And, and it's, think about even just a, taking a seed, an apple seed, you have an apple, there's the seed, that can turn into a whole tree. That's pretty weird, don't you yes, think? Yeah. That you can go from a seed mm -hmm. to a tree. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I hate to say what the anthropologists always say, but it is relative. No, no. Thank you. It's interesting. So I like, I'm also trying to draw you out to sort of make this point, because I think one of the things, of course, that both of you do is sort of claim that there is, that conspiracy theories are not as far-fetched as people think, right? Yeah, and the same with the QAnon. And, and what I find always so interesting is that they bring this Pizzagate story as the prime example of the the craziness and the dangerousness of conspiracy theories because who could think that people are communicating via some secret messages about uh, selling uh, pizzas that there would be actually children trafficked in a pizza parlor in Washington, right? But then on the other hand, you have all the stories of Jeffrey Epstein and about secret uh, child trafficking networks and even Satanism. That uh, uh, the, So there's so many things of how they're on the one hand uh, drawing from very legitimate uh, um, fears and, and discoveries of what actually has happened. Um, and I think then there is a, this, this explosion of fantasies that makes it, um, yeah, Baroque in that way. The thing is, it's always so difficult to, to, to sort of relocate all these, even the most insane ideas to the realm of, of complete lunacy, because they have such strong, uh, empirical basis as well, often. 
And that makes it even hard to also uh, yeah, set them aside for a lot of uh, fact checkers as well. So let's go to the third question. Uh, and now I want to move from the what of conspiracy theories to the who. What people are developing conspiracy theories about and believing and sharing and spreading is really very much related to who uh, makes and shares and believes and develops and likes these conspiracy theories. So this brings us to the question of social inequality. Uh, and inclusion and exclusion. So how are conspiracy re theories related to uh, social inequalities? As for instance, Elisa, in your story about the American dream. So can conspiracy theories be seen as response to social exclusion? Or is that too simplistic or again, too sort of flat or easy an interpretation? And what sort of inclusions and exclusions are generated by such theories? So Elisa. Okay, I'm, I'm going to answer that question, but before I do, something just popped into my mind, and I just want to make sure that we don't forget to address it when you say it about the who, who. There's there's also kind of, you could say, an industry behind the conspiracy theories where people, real manipulators, are putting conspiratorial stuff out there to make a buck. That's a real thing that really is happening. And so maybe we should just bracket that and keep that aside when we talk about the who who is who is sowing these seeds of doubt. Um, but going back to the area of health, I mean, um, for sure, this is about inclusion and exclusion. Social inequities are at the roots of a lot of the so-called conspiracy theories in that realm of health. And they're representations of inequities that cause suffering, right? People are suffering, there's sickness, there's illness, and, and that might be the, the, the focus of what is the conspiracy. But the conspiracy is telling us that there is some inequity that's driving that suffering. And so they aren't really, of course, then you get into this question of, are these really conspiracy theories? They're really, from another perspective, they're astute observations regarding the way that power works, right? So this is why certain people are getting sicker than other people. And let's say it's people with brown skin are getting sicker than people with white skin. It's a description of the way power works in a white supremacist or whatever, fill in the blank kind of a society. So thinking about the Community Bags project, and that's that's been the recent work that I've been involved in during COVID, we had sites in a number of Black and Latino communities across the United States. And a lot of the participants reported that a portion of their communities didn't trust the public health services related to COVID. So um, some examples would be, and, and here's an interesting point, is that the same sort of conspiracy theory can go in different directions in different communities. So you have this idea that when you get your vaccine, or even when we got, before the vaccines were there, you had the nasal swab that goes up the nose. Um, so some kind of microchip or whatever is being implanted. And in African-American communities, people who who were suspicious of that, and again, for good legacy reasons, right, and even for reasons related to current maltreatment today, the idea would be that that's going to turn you into a robot or some kind of a slave. And you can easily see the link there between the historic maltreatment of, of um, Black people or people of African descent in the United States. Whereas in the Latinx or Hispanic Latino communities, the same thing would, was idea there, that some kind of thing is going to be implanted. But in this case, it's used for surveillance of your movement that really tracks to an issue of um, having the right paperwork to be in the United States to begin with. So the same thing, but different forms of 
of malevolence or whatever you want to call it out of the same surface theory happen there. But I want to just go back to the idea of why would you have these and why would you have a distrust of the public health services? And it's not because they're staffed by lizard people for the most part, but it's because the health services hadn't proven themselves to be trustworthy. People remember for sterilization. They remember this and they also have contemporary experiences of the broken system. So why wouldn't you see these things in a sort of suspicious light or as potentially dangerous? Why wouldn't you consider, for example, COVID could be a way to get rid of black and brown and poor people. That's something that we heard. And you look at the statistics, that is the people who were dying, who are dying most, who are suffering the most. Those are the worst hit populations. So there's an equity uh, indexed in the conspiracy theories. But I also want to add this kind of inequity isn't the only driver. Uh, There's also that bigotry that we've talked about, and that is indexing a different kind of inequity. You'll hear oftentimes um, when people, members of the quote underclass express conspiracy theories, it's a response to structural racism. It's a a response to this overt kind of bigotry. Um, But in other conspiracy theories, that bigotry is expressed in in reference to who's doing the string pulling. You know, anti-Semitism is deeply, deeply embedded in many conspiracy theories um, and gives a different kind of thread to pull at when you're trying to understand inequitable social structures. It uh, refers back to what we discussed before, that there's not one way, one sort of uh, conspiracy theories, but they're actually different kinds, Right. Uh, but I think in all cases, it tends to index at least some experience of powerlessness or power loss, which maybe is not the same thing. So I think the, the presence of, you know, some sort of big structures of elites tend to prior to either to real experience of powerlessness, which indeed for black and brown people uh, dying of COVID more than I think this is real powerlessness. And I think maybe for the more bigoted, it's also about loss of power. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Which is not the same. Yes. Which is not the same thing. I think this also. I think this also translates to many of the European conspiracy theories that we see that are slightly different. Uh, but uh, what about you, Yaron? What sort of relation do you see with inequalities? Yeah. So I, I firstly agree very much with what Elita was saying. But if you even if you put it a, a level more abstract, then what are conspiracy theories about? Uh, the truth, right? So then I think the sort of the the um, the framing of our current era as post-truth is so mistaken in the sense that like, I, I think the truth is more relevant than ever. What you see are very fierce public battles about the truth. So what is at stake is who gets to decide over the truth. So the definitional power of reality, I think, so from a sociological perspective, like what groups have uh, the, 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 the power to define what is real and what is not and why and following what procedures. And here you see that we live in an increasingly technocratic and rationalist world, which includes great numbers of people and ways of knowing. So in a way, for me, it relates a lot to epistemic injustice in the sense that a lot of people in our societies have very little influence over the kind of knowledge that is being produced by science, by media. Uh, And because scientific knowledge is increasingly such a big part of uh, any political dispute, uh, a very a big trump card. Um, so in a world where like nation states, where corporations, multinational corporations have so many possibilities to produce knowledge to their advantage, I think that 
uh, this is how conspiracy theories relate to inequality as well. That citizens have very little possibilities to produce knowledge to their advantage. And you can see that uh, uh, in all kinds of different uh, topics of, uh, of conspiracy theories. Um, but I, I also see that it's not only the disenfranchised who uh, do the conspiracy theories. Um, Especially if you look at, for example, and this is the work you've been doing as well, Elisa, I think very much with this sort of alternative medicine communities, at least in the Western Europe part, but I think in the US as well. These are highly educated urban hipster elites um, that are professing all kinds of conspiratorial thought uh, against uh, the, the big pharma, the elites, um, etc. And they've been very hard to conceptualize as as disenfranchised people um so yeah so there's many different groups and in different ways it ties to in, uh, yeah to inequalities uh and injustice in that way but i think what i found also interesting when you asked the question about what inclusion and exclusions are generated by such theories i also had to think very much about how um conspiracy theorists exclude and include a lot of people as well by uh, their own sort of framing of the majority of people as sheeple that are like uh, believing everything that the governments and the media are telling and how they uh, uh, include people by uh, the narrative of awakening. Sure, one of the one of the enjoyments of uh, of uh, conspiracy theories is also that you are part of the group who knows and that you can look down upon the others who don't know. I think that's definitely one of the. Uh, Appeals. What must be one of the great joys and and appeals of these theories. Um, so I want to get back to the final and probably most uh, fraught question, which is not only academic, but also moral and maybe political. So that is, so what should we do with or about conspiracy theories? Uh, so to take you up on the arguments you made repeatedly in your work and also during our conversation. So why doesn't it make sense to debunk it? Uh, so yeah, Ron, you first because you've been most vocal, I think. In uh... well, so I think um, so. What I found interesting is that even the debunkers are are getting back at their ideas because um, okay. So my point, more or less, what I made it in the paper uh, of the special issue that I think that debunking is not is not possible because I think it's very difficult for scholars like us, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, or many of the scholars studying conspiracy theories to delineate what is what is true and what is false the questions at stake are way too complex to actually say something meaningful about that uh, we have to rely and trust other authorities again so this i find very problematic then i also think it is not very professional in the sense that um, these are um, public disputes over truth and we are trying to understand how they work where they come from um, what people do and, and to grasp the sort of the meaning of these uh, uh, wars. So then I think is taking sides in these truth wars what we should actually do as scholars. Um, but I think most importantly is that you see that debunking is just not productive. Providing more correct information uh, in between air quotes uh, won't work because knowledge acceptance is not just a cognitive or epistemic issue. Um, and people... Um, take over knowledge from other people when they trust these sources, when they can identify with these sources, when they can relate to these sources. And this is the same problem that I uh, tried to explain before of these of the felt cultural 
different uh, distance between the ones who decide and and define reality and knowledge and the ones who are experiencing it. So the fact checkers are all in a, in the U.S. context and are all these liberal uh, democratic elites. Uh, if you're a, a Republican from the Midwest, you're not going to believe these people. They speak different. They have they speak differently. They have different cultural codes. They have different ways of engaging with each other. So it's very hard for these people to believe them. So I think we need to really move beyond the idea that we can convince people with more rational explanations and facts, etc., and instead try to um, f- well find different ways of including them. Um, in 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 the in the institutions and organizations that that uh, that delineate what is right and what is wrong. Um, so, for example, these fact like Snopes and these big fact check organizations. Why are they not recruiting in Louisiana, in the middle of nowhere, or in Texas, and having a more socially representative uh, fact check organization so that people can actually trust those? Um, so, I think not only to achieve greater sort of epistemic uh, diversity in the sense that we need more pe- more different kinds of knowing, etc., but also, yeah, to, to have a, a more societally representative organs that can actually help people uh, put trust in them. Yeah, so thank you. So basically what you're saying is actually that fact-checking also is a way to feel good about yourself, Right. Yeah, for the liberal, Almost. democratic, uh, highly educated urban hipsters. Yeah, so it is. There is. There is definitely something of the mirror of you know being in the know and being awakened uh, in conspiracy theories and the sort of the the same sort of effective uh, affordance in a way that fact checking gives. So it makes you feel good about yourself, but you never talk to the people who are not in on this discourse anyway. So Elisa. So why doesn't it make sense to debunk? Yes, uh, yes, preaching to the choir, as Yaron just said, it's exactly that. It It doesn't make sense to do it because it doesn't work. And yet, at the same time, because um, professionally, I'm located in a different space of academia. I'm in an applied department. I have a foot in public health and that kind of thing. I'm thinking about all these beliefs that do lead to harm. And so... In the article chosen for today, the academic one, here's what I said. I'll quote myself, right? Truly counterfactual details can and should be challenged in proportion to the degree to which their promulgation could underwrite widespread harm, subverting the greater good. Although all parties involved should have a say in defining harm, social justice and basic human rights must take precedence. And in an ideal world, sure, that's what ha- happens, right? But in the meantime, it's all these points that have just been made. We ha- And so we have to stay away from triggering language when we want to get people to say yes to, you know, for public health reasons, please get vaccinated or minimize gun violence or what have you, whatever we want to bring uh, people to yes to, you have to do it not in a way that's just trying to hear the real facts. I know and you don't know. It has to be in a much more well thought through way, utilizing, for example, um, you know, some of the some of the methods that Yaron brought to light. Because I think also what what we forget uh, when we are talking about debunking is that you are uh, telling people you are not right. You're wrong. And we don't acknowledge mm-hmm. sort of the values or concerns or griefs that undergird these beliefs. So they're completely, uh, um, how do you say that, uh, denied in their in their being. 
And this is, of course, not an ideal state if you want to have people trust you again. Uh, and that, yeah, I think also uh, risk, we risk that these people radicalize further because they feel discarded, ignored, not seen, um, making also victimization possible. And I think that's what you see very much in the in the uh, more lower uh, class uh, right wing kind of movements. Um, this, yeah, this this victimization becomes also a strategy again. Uh, so, yeah, in all kinds of ways, I think we need to w find ways to include these people instead of exclude people because they would further radicalize. Yeah, and if you listen, if you listen to the the articulations of harm or injustice, you know, whether or not you believe it's real or not, it's perceived, it's felt, it's felt. And if we give people a space to really talk about those, then the actual underlying stuff that the conspiracy theory is based on gets expressed. And once that gets expressed and acknowledged and dealt with to the degree that it can, um, to, sometimes you don't need to then change minds because minds change by themselves because these injustices are brought to light. The, quest, the final question I had for you, Elisa, so I was like, you're really very impressed with that you wrote this article before COVID, before the pandemic and reading it, it's almost like, oh, wow, this is, you know, what has happened. It's like like a sort of pre-science almost in the way that you, but it is. So I think the, the things that you both suggest are actually they seem to be long-term or sort of relatively long-term solutions. But just, I mean, just imagine you're a healthcare worker now looking at uh, the pandemic and surely there's likely to be a new wave and surely they're the same people who have, uh, for various reasons, not been vaccinated and are more at risk. So is there a short-term solution to this? What would you say, Elisa? Oh, in the short term, yeah. I, I what what these... What you had just mentioned about going into the community, that really does seem to work. And at least um, in the United States, we're seeing more and more communities follow that model. In San Diego, there's a region, a part of our county, which was hardest hit, which also happens to be, of course, no surprise there, um, highly Hispanic, very poor, and the hardest hit by COVID. And the thought was, oh, you know, that's also going to be those people aren't going to those right those people in the air quotes aren't going to vaccinate. Well, that's not what happened because there's a promotora model in place, and promotoras are uh, community health workers. So it's exactly the same model, I think, or at least along the lines of what you were mentioning, Yaron, about going into the community, and it's about relationships. And it's about rebuilding that trust and showing people that the health system is trustworthy, is worthy of their trust. And so in the end, after um, all the access issues were sorted out, because access issues were huge, after those were sorted, that region actually has the highest vaccine rate in San Diego County. But I think, too, I don't want to drop this idea of the deliberative panels. That is something that we really do need to make more use of. And I think that in all the sort of emergency response uh, to COVID and all the, you know, tr trying to just get sites open and get the vaccines to people, that it, at least in the United States, we did not do as much with those as we could have, as we should have. And in fact, I have an email sitting in my email inbox from, I think it's like January 2021, about starting to launch and get something like that started. And it just never got off the ground because of other things that got in the way. We really need to come back to that model. Okay, so this actually uh, ties in very nicely with the final question before we go to the closing, which is 
with the question I always ask, which is where do we go from here? So on the basis of these insights that you that you have provided on conspiracy theories that I think for many people will be counterintuitive. Um, so, and we've talked about the short term and the long term. So both in terms of uh, academic work, but also in terms of, I don't know, uh, seeing this as an issue of social justice or inequity, where do we go from here with this knowledge about uh, conspiracy theories or your rethinking of conspiracy theory. So Elisa, first. Well, those deliberative panels, we need, we need to put those into place around the globe. And then, um, second, and I'll just, I'll just stop with the second point is about a typology or some kind of, um, a, yeah, a typology that will help us in sorting through this in a more sophisticated way. So Yaru, yeah, where do we go from here? Well, I, so your panels will be installed if if Elisa Elisa runs encouraged. for president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so go Elisa for president. But um, yes, uh, I think, well, what we sort of, so I think an important step also in, in, in research, but also in terms of practice is to, to study how these institutions that are the target of conspiracy theories, so media, science, public health, how they're actually dealing with this. And I think here there can be a lot of, because I have given a lot of sort of lectures for these different organizations and I found them most revealing because these people can then explain and talk about their experiences with conspiracy theories. So I think uh, theorists, so I think we uh, study too little of these day-to-day -day interactions with healthcare workers or journalists who receive uh, mails every day or high school teachers who don't know how to deal with uh, conspiracy theories in their classrooms. And I think these uh, sort of interactions between the institutions from... So we focus a lot on the conspiracy theories and these people that uh, pr like proclaim them, but very little on the interactions they have with, uh, um, yeah, with public institutions and how they react to that and how these institutions can deal in different ways so as to accommodate the sort of concerns that we raised in this uh, talk today. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point that you make. And then uh, just as a final point, I know I said I wasn't going to speak anymore, but you know I can't help it. I think we need to deal with loneliness because loneliness is a big factor in driving people toward the internet, seeking a community where they can feel yeah. included. And then I don't want to add one thing. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, one quick thing. <laughs> we're no, we're terrible. This ties we? into that. It's not only the loneliness, but it's also the felt distance between the life world of everyday people and this very big institutional world. So bring those together yes. is, is a way to build trust again. They just grew apart too far. Thank you so much for joining us. So you've listened to an episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast with Joron Harambam and Elisa Sobo, a medical anthropologist and an interdisciplinary social scientist who doesn't want to call himself a sociologist anymore, <laughs> although I know he used to way back when. Uh, and they talked to us about conspiracy theories. So thank you so much for this conversation. Very revealing indeed. And good luck with the deliberative panels, of course. Thank you for inviting us. Bye.